The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. In this one, your grandfather says, I'm certain that if the child, Matilda, has your hair and eyes as you describe, she will grow up to be a great beauty. Oh, I'm not sure that was true. But people did say I had a very good complexion. Did the letters distress you, Miss Matty? It's not the letters, but the memories that grieve me. Suddenly they rise up when I thought them fastened down. Here is a letter from Peter that he wrote at school. It does not matter that I can barely see to read it or that one day it will be dust. I've been through it so many times. Mother dear, I've been beaten again and I've seen a ghost. Please send some cake with some citron in. <laughs> Was he sent far from home? Shrewsbury. But things did not work out as they ought. So father decided to tutor him at home to keep him out of mischief. Because he really did have a dreadful habit of... He had a habit of hoaxing. Boys misbehave. Peter was more than a boy and less than sensible. That's when things began to come undone. Might we blow out the candles, Mary dear? I think I might talk better in the dark. Mm, that was the always excellent Dame Judy Dench in a clip from an adaptation of Cranford, the great novel by Elizabeth Gaskell, also known as Mrs. Gaskell a writer from the Victorian era. We're going to be talking today about the kinds of books that young women in the World War I era might have encountered. That's right. We're joined again by author Radovatsal, a historian and the author of the Kitty Weeks Mystery Series. Book two in the series has just come out. We'll talk about that. And we'll talk about why Mrs. Gaskell in particular would be so perfect for Kitty. This is fun, watching Kitty Weeks, the character, grow and having access to her creator in real time, and listeners, here's a couple of beach recommendations for you or the airport or wherever you find yourself this summer. There's Mrs. Gaskell, her books Cranford, Wives and Daughters, North and South, all of them excellent. Also, the miniseries. You heard Judy Dench there. Cranford, you could seek that out. I think you'll want to know the story that she's about to tell when she blows out the candle. And... The recommendation, Murder Between the Lines. I blazed through the novel uh, while I was at an airport, and I loved every page. Rada really has this down. The pace is wonderful. The protagonist is even more wonderful, and the history is compelling and serves the story. If you like intrepid young female journalists, or if you'd like to know more about the period in the 19-teens in New York City, or both, then... This is the book for you. Okay, welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. What else do we have going on? We're still ad-free and still going strong. Nothing nothing can stop the podcast except vacation, which is coming up. I'm off to Seattle for some R&R, and neither of those stands for rain. Those R's are reading and more reading. There is no rest for the weary. 
or relaxation. So here's the vacation schedule. This is the 99th episode. Number 100 should be up without a delay. I don't want to make you wait for that one. There may be a short delay before number 101. But number 100 is a good one. You could listen to that one twice. Mike Palindrome stopped by for that one. We haven't had Mike on for a while, have we? Oh, we did. Feuds. That's right. We had great literary duels. Getting some good feedback on that one. So find us on Facebook. Entertain us with your emails. Here we go. Let's do some alliterations. Find us on Facebook. Entertain us with your emails. Uh, Intercept us on iTunes. Sidle up on Stitcher. Grab us from Google Play. What What other can we get going here? Visit us on the web. Visit us. All right. Another dream dies. Radovatsal with a Kitty Weeks reading list today on the history of literature. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now for a repeat appearance on our show is Radha Vatsal, expert in early 20th century film and journalism, and the author of the Kitty Weeks mystery series. The last time Radha was here, her first book, A Front Page Affair, was about to come out, and now she's published the second book in the series, Murder Between the Lines, and we're going to ask her some questions about her writing process, her experience on the book tour, and because this is the history of literature, I'm going to ask about the books that her intrepid heroine, a single young woman living in New York on the eve of World War I might be most likely to have read. Radha Vatsal, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed our last conversation. Oh, so did I, and so did the listeners. We got a lot of positive feedback, so I'm glad you're here again, and I know that you've been busy, and I want to start by complimenting the new book, Murder Between the Lines, which I started reading while I was waiting for a flight, and I kept reading it during the flight, and I don't think I looked up more than a handful of times until I was finished. It was very enjoyable. Thank you. Um, as I was saying when we were speaking earlier, it's always good to to hear because you never know yeah. whether a book works until someone 
uh, reads it and tells you. So. Yeah, my guess is you'll need about 10 years and then someday you'll pick it up and, and start reading it again and you'll read it like a real reader will and you'll probably be very impressed with how, oh. uh, how it flows. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so how has the response to Kitty been? I think it's been great. I mean, I think yeah. people really um, like her a lot as a character. Mm-hmm. And they also really, she, you know, the, the book takes place 1915, 1916. She works at a newspaper, at the ladies' page of a newspaper, because women weren't um, allowed to report real news at the time. So they were always relegated mm-hmm. to these women's departments in the papers. And I think people really like the combination of office politics a hundred yeah. years ago and these yeah. discussions on, you know, feminism and stuff and what women can do and can't do. And so much of the feedback I get, um, you know, says how sort of fam- familiar it feels to women now. Right. Yeah, that those struggles that took place for Kitty before women had the right to vote, which they got in 1920, a lot of those struggles, you know, we're still seeing. And I guess I was just reading in the papers today about uh, women being interrupted while they were speaking and stuff. So, Right. Yeah, with uh, Kamala Harris. That's right. It's been uh, and I, yeah, and I think a director of Uber as well, so oh. complaining about that. Well, and that that's the thing. I mean, it's... Uh, the book is, it's not anachronistic. I mean, it, it's not as if I felt like today's conflicts were thrown back into the turn of the century. It feels very real and historically accurate for where she is and what she's going. But one of the things I like about it is a lot of the conflict is sort of internal for her. It's like she's internalized all of the things that women can and can't do. And she doesn't just assume that it's her place to break down doors, but sometimes you know, she she knows she has to press, but she knows she also has to be uh, a daughter and a friend and an employee. And she kind of can empathize with the people who are maybe uh, stuck in their ways of thinking for good reason. Yeah, I think that was very important for me to create a heroine who wasn't completely modern. It bothers me a lot in novels where I read where where I feel like the main character's views are remarkably similar to Mm, what mm -hmm. our views are now. And for me, part of the fun was writing that kind of struggle that she might have. And in Murder Between the Lines, for instance, um, it's um, based around the death of a young um, boarding school student who's found sort of frozen in the snow. And uh, she's known to be a sleepwalker. And the papers report that, you know, her sleepwalking was brought upon, uh, brought about because she studied too much and this kind right. of um, like depleted her nervous system and caused her to, you know, do things like sleepwalk. And that's actually based on a newspaper article almost verbatim, except for in the newspaper article, that was the end of the story. There was no suggestion that any foul play had occurred, and I, you know, took the liberty of making it into a mystery. But as I was researching the book, too, I saw that, you know, many suicide uh, accounts of young women who committed suicide, all of this were put down to often put down to if the girl went to college or school that, you know, she studied too much, she worked too hard, like women's brains can't handle that kind of pressure. And it leads to all kinds of um, physical and emotional stresses. Right. And Kitty's response is, is not just to say, well, that's superstitious, that's ridiculous, women are as, as capable as men, but to 
to wonder about it a little bit and to say, well, is there anything to that science? And to be a little anxious because she herself likes to read and study and, and she explores the idea rather than just dismisses it the way we with, you know, a century of hindsight might do. Exactly. And for me, I, I, I really wanted to have that as part of it because I, I feel like it would be crazy for her uh, with just like that being so much. I mean, this is a story that was on the front page of the New York Times, Girl Sonambulist Frozen to Death. And, and that's what they thought was a credible reason mm-hmm. for why this young woman might have gone out sleepwalking. So for Kitty to just dismiss it out of hand made um, no sense to me. So she does, she does look into it. She goes to see a nerve specialist who talks to her about some of the medical um, knowledge that was out at the moment and at that time. And one of the books, I I don't mind, um, I'm going to jump ahead if you don't mind and um, just mention it, Uh was uh, is called Sex and Education by Edward Clark. And he was a, a Harvard guy who argued and it was a, it was a well-received book that, for instance, it's it's all right for women to study and work hard. It's just that time in their life when they do it, they're transitioning into maturity. It's not a good time. You know, this leads to all kinds of um, physical problems in terms of, uh, you know, menstruation and all this kind of stuff, and they can never kind of mature properly if they sort of drain too much of their energy to their brains, essentially. Right. And when when Kitty hears all this, she also wonders, as you said, you know, well, is she working too much? Is she studying, you know, reading too much? And uh, she takes it to heart, but she also questions it. And And for me, that's part of what makes writing in a particular historical moment so interesting, is that the history is not just the backdrop, but you want to have it filter into how the characters think, and presumably the explanations that they would have given for a murder or for some event would have been different than the explanations we give today. And a hundred years later, people may come and, and think that the explanations we've offered for things that have happened sound pretty crazy and superstitious. Right, right. So, you know, it's funny that I started with the question, um, how has the response to Kitty been, rather than how has the response to the book been? But it it just seems like the right question. She's so lifelike and likable, and I think it's because of the way you've done this, where she's wrestling with the history in such an interesting way, and, and such a... Uh, we're so close to Kitty, and I felt like it was... Uh, sort of her book as much as yours. I, I almost felt like if, if someone had told me that they, uh, for some reason they told me they didn't really like the book, I'd be offended on Kitty's behalf because I'd say, well, um, how could you not like Kitty? I don't know if that's, oh, that's what you were going funny. for. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think I was going for that sort of uh, consciously, but but I like her. I'm interested in her struggles too. So, so I'm glad that uh, that's that's. Again, that's just great to hear. Yeah. Now, this I know this is a series, and I'm glad to hear you say that that you like her. I could imagine uh, an author launching into a series, and then after several books, um, tiring of the main character or feeling like they had um, kind of said all there was to say or or done all there was to do. But it sounds like you would still be able to to see your way forward. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly rich period and mm-hmm. i feel like i've said i've um i've mentioned this before but there's um there's really not so much that's been written in this 
moment, which is sort of during the World War One era, even though the U.S. hasn't yet, the time these novels are set, the U.S. hasn't yet um, sent its troops abroad. But there's so much going on, so much changing, both for women politically, but for the country as a whole, culturally, um, and it's really transitioning from sort of being this Victorian and second-tier country to being a global superpower. And it all happens very, very fast almost in like these five, six years. And so I think partly because it's kind of a complicated and not an easy period that there isn't, I feel, so much popular fiction set during this time. Mm. It all sort of comes before where you have, you know, the robber barons. You have the turn of the century, so you have the robber barons and... um you know, the Astor, the Vanderbilts, all that gilded era, New York, or then you jump straight to the 20s and the jazz age. But how did you go from, how did we go from one to the other? Yeah. So quickly, you know, I feel like that's really something that hasn't been explored. Right. Well, that is going to, uh, that's a nice transition into what I was planning to talk to you about, which is the the books that she would have encountered because as I was going through and I was, I was putting together my own mental list of, Oh, I wonder if she would have read this author or that author. I was struck by how many of them, uh, had not, had not been writing when she was around, you know, during these years, I would, I kept thinking of, you know, Ernest Hemingway and F Scott Fitzgerald. And of course they were all really late teens or, or really in the twenties when it would have hit her radar. And, and I think, you know, for at least fans of literature, that period is almost like the beginning of the 20th century in a way. Um, and the the authors that we maybe will be talking about, the Henry Jameses or Edith Whartons, almost feel like the end of the 19th century. I think that's right. You know, I feel like, I, and I think that's what makes that era so interesting because it's transitional yeah, between it's like the 19th, yeah. yeah and um, so I, I think I mentioned briefly in the novel that, you know, there's something in the paper about Henry James being sick. So yeah. obviously Henry James was well known and established. And I imagine that Kitty, she's 19, so I imagine that she would have read um, had some, you know, something by him. But I still see her more reading the Victorians mm. and then mm-hmm. reading um, in terms of what she's kind of currently reading. She reads the newspaper a lot. She watches movies. I, I feel like she is more um, looking at popular culture. Like, so, she, you know, she reads magazines and a lot of the ladies' home journals, Vogue, and there were, um, were in circulation at the time. Um, also, there were early movie magazines, which she would, I imagine her looking at. So I see her more sort of consuming popular culture. Right, because she was is intensely curious and she has this interest to sort of write profiles and that kind of uh, journalism. Yeah, and I think also that I, I really do think that the world was changing so rapidly. And it's funny because, you know, I started writing this series way before this election. But now that sort of things have settled in, I do feel like the moment that we're living in now is actually very similar to the moment that she was living in, in the sense that every day something crazy was happening, you know, something where I've never personally felt so compelled to check the news, if not, you know, 
once multiple times a day to see what's going on. And the same thing was happening during this, this moment in the teens um, where, where every day, and part of how these novels are constructed is that every day in the novel corresponds to an actual historical day. So, you know, if she mentions that something happened on that day and it's like a public event, that thing happened on that day. Wow. And, 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 um, I, did, I didn't know that. Uh, and I would have guessed that you had just compressed, you know, months worth of historical events into a short span of time. No, not at all. And wow. that was so, that was really crazy. And I was actually, when I wrote it, I was almost wondering whether I should like put the dates on each <laughs> you know, on each right. day or or do something to flag that. But but then I decided that, you know, it might get old as a as a writing thing. But no, the and you can see it very clearly in the first one. It's three weeks and it starts on a particular day and it ends and everything that happens like really happened. And the same thing with this, everything that happens happens exact. So things were just moving incredibly fast. So like I don't see her you know, relaxing back into fiction in the same way when the nonfiction world around her is so right is so kind of tumultuous. Right, right. Especially for someone working at a newspaper where the front page is gathering uh, headline after headline, and if they're all, you know, these these amazingly important stories all crowding for room on the front page, it seems like, um, you know, a journalist would be, uh, get kind of an adrenaline rush from that and be energized and it would make you want to consume even more and more news just to keep up. Yeah, I would think so. And, you know, just as a writer doing the research for me, knowing which stories to leave off when I refer to what's happening (laughs) is is, is almost hard. I want to refer to everything because I want to be able to say, and did you know this, you know, this other thing was going on? It's pretty crazy, but but you can't. But but I feel like those times were really kind of sort of on adrenaline. Things were just moving very fast. Yeah. Maybe you should ask your publisher to include some uh, reprints of the newspapers as like a a pull-out insert or something in the book. Well, I think you would almost have to just see it day by day. You know, if you saw the front page every day, you would just be amazed. And it was like they would say one thing, you know, oh... An agreement has been signed. Next day, it's been rescinded. The third day, that something's happened to the Kaiser. The fourth day, President Wilson. You know, right. it was just, it was, it was kind of like that. And then there'd be multiple other stories going on, like yeah. girl somnambulist frozen to death. You know, so right. it's just very colorful and also important changes. Yeah, and the people. I mean, uh, Thomas Edison and and the president. And I mean, there's just these. Um, these characters that are uh, very important to the cultural life of the country. And what they did and the decisions that they made really changed the country um, in ways that we're still sort of living with. So, for instance, you see a little bit, um, uh, maybe not so much in this, uh, this book, but the first book I kind of in my mind, they're all one. But for instance, you know, this was the time when the, when the FBI got created. There was no FBI before. So you have the Department of Justice and um, and uh, the Treasury Department battling over 
whose kind of investigative teams get to take over and coordinate intelligence for the whole country. So it's the Secret Service battling against the Bureau of Investigation. It wasn't the Federal Bureau of Investigation at that time. And that's part of the backstory with President Wilson, whose son-in-law was the head of the Treasury Department. So there are a lot of parallels also to to what's going on now in an Mm. interesting way. Right. And the the automobile rise. And I mean, Edison is a good example. It's easy to think of him as this inventor who is off in his mad scientist laboratory. And every once in a while, he comes out with this amazing invention. But he was also a real political figure in the sense of, uh, you know, fighting for his company and to get the the electrification Oh yeah, he was very much, um, and he he was very much like in. I think because he wasn't working alone. He it was part of this whole team of people all mm-hmm. working in different areas that were all kind of relevant to the progress and changes that were happening at the time. And one of the issues that Murder Between the Lines takes up was that. Um, you know, again, this is a change that happened so rapidly, but the U.S. Army was was kind of pathetic at the start of World War One. It was, I think, ranked 19 in terms of, you know, quality and uh, training and so on, so on. The U.S. Navy was pretty good, and um, people had these fears that, you know, the war in Europe would somehow spill over uh, uh, into the U.S. somehow, like there'd be like teams of Germans swarming the shores of New Jersey or something, and what was the country going to do to protect itself? And then Edison um, was among those who stood up, like calling for industries to kind of um, take the lead in producing munitions, equipment, all this stuff Mm. that the country needed to... uh, to be able to have a great military fighting, you know, force. And all of that, again, happened during this time. But the way it happens, which is so kind of crazy, and that's what the book explores, like with so many stops and starts, so many errors and consequential errors. I mean, I find that very interesting. It is. And I'm glad we've been talking about it this way, because I think um, we're probably conveying something that I think is really important for people who are deciding whether to read the book. And sometimes historical fiction... It's probably unfairly given this uh, rap, but sometimes you can feel going into it like, oh, well, that's going to be like taking medicine. You know, it's it's a dry period. And what did they know back then? They didn't have the Internet. And and your book is not like that at all. I mean, it reads it's very dynamic. It's very fast paced and exciting. And it's not just that there's a murder mystery, although that helps, but it's uh, just the way the history is unfolding and the way that she's encountering all of the events as they unfold. uh, It's very exciting. Um, Yeah, I think that it must have been very exciting Mm. to, to live during that time. And what I think is interesting also when you're doing historical um, writing is that we know how the story ends. You know, we know in which direction certain things go, right. but we don't know what other direction something um, things could have taken. So, for instance, I don't want to go into sort of things that will give away the plot of this book, but I mentioned briefly, I think in the first book also, that people drove electric cars, um, um, right. you know, a hundred years ago. 
so what happened to, I mean, that's not yeah. part of the second book, but what happened to that? That's a path of development and technological development that didn't get taken. Why didn't it get taken? And now, a hundred years later, we're, we're cycling back to that, trying to figure out how to make this technology part of our life. So I feel like sometimes the winning technology or the winning solution is not always the best solution. Mm-hmm. And I like to focus on also the things that didn't work, the things that didn't happen, and that we now, a hundred years later, don't know that, oh, well, they were actually trying to do this, or maybe things didn't exactly look the way, you know, that the path to get from point A to point B was not a straight path, right. I guess. Right, and not an inevitable one. Exactly. That's, yeah. That's right. Okay, so let's uh, talk a little more about the books. We started to talk about the nonfiction, and before we move to the fiction, let's just keep going with the nonfiction books because I felt like in the it's so important to the book these nonfiction works that uh, people are are using to uh, sort of explain women or uh, or explain other aspects of life that are important to Kitty. And that become uh, something she really has to wrestle with. So what are the other books that you think, uh, the nonfiction works that you think would have been important to Kitty? So some of the others are, um, there were all these guides. I think it was a great time for print culture. Mm. And there were a lot of self-help guides and um other types of books that she might have referred to or actually I I mentioned that she refers to them. So one of them is like there's a series called Peeps at Great Cities and and there's a New York edition and she uses that because she's a newcomer, relatively speaking, to New York City. Hmm. So she uses that to kind of get around the city to know what's what. And I really enjoy reading these descriptions of what a guidebook to a visitor coming to New York in the teens. So what are they was, like? Are they do they have maps and pictures or are there descriptions or Well, this one doesn't have um maps, but it kind of describes the feel of the place and then it tells you, you know, the funny thing is that so much of it is is the same. So I'll just sort of give you the <laughs> table of contents if you if you don't right. mind. So it's like the spirit of the city. So it talks about the hustle and bustle and the city that never, (laughs) you know, sleeps. New Amsterdam, the the, uh, history of the city, how to get to New York, two great stations. So Penn Station Mm. and Grand Central, which had been built at the time, four great streets. And if I remember correctly, that the, the four big streets are Wall Street, Fifth Avenue, Broadway, and Riverside Drive. Wow. And they are kind of like these four streets that yep. really kind of in different ways present a different kind of portrait of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the city in the morning, afternoon, and night, the skyscrapers, Coney Island, shops and theaters. So, yeah, I mean, so in a funny way, it's like both different as you read the description and at the same time, it's almost very similar. Like the things that the guidebook points out are the things that I think guidebooks today would still um, point out. Yeah, right. And uh, does it give advice for uh, young women in particular? Like here are some areas not to go into or here's the, the type of thing to avoid? 
I actually didn't catch that in this book because it's a, it's a general mm. book, but there mm-hmm. are many books like uh, in in the first um, in the first Kitty Weeks book in a Front Page Affair, she she you know she looks at a book called Journalism for Women. So those books are definitely sort of geared towards women, and they tell you what are the faults women make, you know, what are the mistakes women writers generally make. So that's definitely more, um, you know sort of centered around gender she also reads um uh this this book called uh, what a young woman ought to know and uh <laughs> that, that's uh you know that's about that's sort of like a guide to to growing up and just right. like getting married and you know uh now was that written by a man no it was actually written by a woman okay and um i'm actually i thought i had pulled it out but I pulled out the wrong book. Um, I'm going to see if I can. Yep, I have it right here. But uh, yeah, it was written by a woman, and it's kind of like a guidebook, like a one of these American Girl Growing Up books, uh-huh. you know, might be now today. Um, and uh, you know, it has chapters on like, uh, what are you worth? Your body, sleep breathing, exercise, you know, all of these things. Right. And then, yep. But then the advice that it gives of, uh, you know, added injuries from tight clothing, um, <laughs> how often to bathe, things like that, building your brain. And uh, so, uh, uh, I mean... You know, part of me is, it's, it's like I'm torn. Part of me is interested because I find it interesting that... Uh, you know, to think about this advice being given to a young woman. And part of me, I think because I'm talking to you, I'm thinking this must be so interesting for you to encounter these things and to think uh, that here are some details that might make their way into your narrative. And it would be really interesting for Kitty, you know, every time she gets dressed, if she's thinking about the clothes that she's putting on because of what she's read in one of these books or or the 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 common sentiment that or the common wisdom that's out there at the time. Yeah, and and that's exactly what I wanted to try to use, and especially in the in the cases we were discussing earlier of the murder that's at the heart of this book, which is this young woman sleepwalker dying. Um, I think that all kind of ties in together because she would have been raised. She may. She obviously has, given that she works at a newspaper and so on, she has some sort of more progressive outlook on the world, but she would also have gotten all these other messages about what's right to do, what's wrong to do, the effects of certain things, you know, too much exercise, too little exercise, tight clothes, not tight clothes. And all of this would play into what kind of a detective she is and how she solves these mysteries and and that's kind of what i enjoy working with right now before we leave uh the world of nonfiction, i wanted to mention that a lot of this takes place uh around a school that um that kitty is visiting and and doing some uh as part of first as part of a some profiles that she's writing, but then as part of her investigation, she gets to kind of see the world of these private schools. And I'm really struck by how the philosophy of the school itself or the, the head of the school or the individual teachers 
makes such a big difference for the type of education that's going to be available. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, what you found when you were uh, doing well, the research on the schools. Well, you know, actually what was interesting to me was I, I thought there would be much more material out there in terms of women's education, schooling, mm-hmm. and so on. And there was really not as much as I thought. There was more on college-level education, but even that, mm. there wasn't as much as I thought there would be. And... um in terms of like what the boarding school experience would have been like or or like an elite girl school experience would have been like there really weren't so many general books and i kind of had to piece i kind of pieced it together from various sources and accounts of what because i think that there was Many of these schools were started by, you know, like for instance, Miss Porter's, which still exists today, were started by these individual women mm-hmm. who who started off with tiny class sizes and had a very personal kind of approach to the education of young women and their philosophy, you know, there were no regulations of you know, what needed to be taught or not taught. So right. I imagine that many of those schools were very kind of idiosyncratic and they really operated according to their founders' philosophies. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of tried to piece it together from like a, a little accounts that I came across. But I also, at, right at the beginning, there is a scene where, you know, she's walking through the school and you hear the teachers talking and I tried to to find um, period textbooks and sort of use some of their language in the kind of instruction the girls were getting. Right. But um, but it was interesting that, you know, that I couldn't find, like, for instance, some general nonfiction, even an academic overview of the subject. It was very hard for me to find. Hmm. Interesting. Well, if it was part your invention... Uh, it seemed very believable, but also just very compelling that, you know, a parent might be choosing a school, um, you know, because they want a school that's going to teach very traditional values or or they might want one or they might be okay with one where it's kind of progressive and the girls are, are pointed toward a more professional kind of uh, postgraduate life. Yeah, and I think, well, I think also what's interesting is like the combination of the two, right? Because mm-hmm. in the school, the, some of the principal's um, views are very progressive and others aren't not. So she doesn't believe in corporal punishment. But then in terms of the subjects the girls are taught and how much they're taught of a certain subject also. So for instance, the young woman who dies is interested in science. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. one thing I did find out, which was very interesting, and it's, this I think happened again and again is when you know in the 17th maybe seventh I don't know 17th 18th or 18th and 19th century when science was a little bit more ad hoc and less prestigious there were a lot of books geared towards women in biology and um, you know for, for women in chemistry and and uh, and those were considered women's subjects and the men um, focused more on the humanities oh, and that's then so interesting yeah, and then when science sort of became more reputable and I suppose became more scientific, then women were steered away to it and then humanities became more of a 
woman's subject and they right. they were pushed into like home economics and these new fields that came up and even in the sciences they were pushed more towards biology than towards chemistry and physics um but that wasn't always the case mm. which was something that i found interesting so there are all these like cycles of thought happening about what is the right thing to teach women and i I think I blended the principles views as like a little bit of combination of some forward looking and others. Right. Yep. More oh. conservative. Okay. So let's move to the literature. So you mentioned that you thought that Kitty would probably, the fiction she would have encountered would have been more of the Victorians. Um, do you think that would have been required or would she have uh, found it just because in the, the world before radio and television, novels were a, a primary form of entertainment, or how do you think she would have come across the novels? Well, I imagine that um, she, her backstory is that she went to boarding school in Switzerland, and mm -hmm. I, I think also at the time, whether or not she had gone to boarding school in Switzerland, the U.S. at that time was looking to Europe for all its cultural cues. Right. So I think she would have been more likely to read, you know, British Victorian literature than say American literature right. for starters. So um, probably not uh, Edgar Allan Poe or Mark Twain or they probably wouldn't have been on her radar as a as a girl in a school in Switzerland. No, I think as 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 a girl with with some um a well-off young woman? No, I think she would have probably read more Dickens and Jane Austen, and mm -hmm. uh, and particularly she mentions um, Elizabeth Gaskell. Right. Um, so let's who, let's talk about Elizabeth Gaskell, often called Mrs. Gaskell. That's right. <laughs> I like to call her Mrs. Gaskell. <laughs> yeah, let's call her that. So what what does? Uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted. So what is Kitty finding in Mrs. Gaskell's works? Well. The book I specifically mention her reading um, is Wives and Daughters. Mrs. Gaskell wrote like a, a bunch of different for kinds of books. There were these social issue novels, mm -hmm. um, like North and South, um, which is excellent. Um, Ruth, which I haven't read, but they really tackle some big issues. North and South, for instance, tackles the difference between you know. Um, northern industrialized England and the South, the more genteel cultured kind of British society. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think they're sort of very bold and powerful novels. She also did um, the biography of... Charlotte, Bra I, Charlotte Bronte. Yeah, exactly. She did the biography of Charlotte Bronte. She wrote Cranford, which yeah. is a smaller novel, which I think people know about because it was serialized, mm -hmm. um, a masterpiece theater, but it's light and very funny. In that novel, actually, there's a guy who gets run over, I think, by a train because he's too busy reading Dickens. Um, <laughs> and um, and Wives and Daughters, I read this late. I grew up reading Jane Austen. I mean, I started I reading Jane Austen very young, and I just loved those books, as so many people do. And then, you know, George Eliot, everybody knows about George Eliot. I read Wives and Daughters, and I was amazed. Mm. I think it was, uh, I was just kind of blown away, because I felt like it was somewhere between 
try to, I mean, between Jane Austen and not sort of in the sense that it, it's not political, it's a story about a young girl and growing up and all this kind of stuff, and somewhere between um, Jane Austen, or not between Jane Austen meets George Eliot, but I, I think of it as like sort of like a perfect novel mm. of of the time, and uh, and it deals with many of the things that Kitty has to deal with because the young woman in that in the novel Molly Gibson, the heroine, is lives alone with her father as Kitty does, mm-hmm. but then he decides to remarry. And uh, and then the new stepmother has a stepdaughter and the kind of um, just their relationship and, and, and what happens, that's that's wives and daughters. But Kitty has this fear and, and in um, Murder Between the Lines, her father meets this other woman and she has this fear that he's going to get married. And that's also an interesting thing for, for me to explore for a heroine living in the 1950, you know, 1910s is... is She's able to do what she does because she doesn't have a mother figure in the stories. Um, right. If she suddenly happened to have a mother figure uh, appear on the, uh, you know, on the scene, it would probably curtail her activities and her freedom. And hmm. um, and, and in what ways? Well, I don't think. You know, her father, Kitty's father doesn't ask too many questions. He allows her to go out and about by herself pretty much. I mean, she doesn't go out late and things, but she has a lot of freedom. Whereas with um, a a, a mother, she would maybe have to be chaperoned. The mother would want, would be more involved in her day-to-day life and more... And more concerned about, um, even if the mother trusted her, would be more concerned about appearances and... And, um, well, here's here's how that would look if we were to allow you to do that. Exactly. And, um, and when we spoke the last time, we were talking about these silent era action film heroines. Right. Um, and one of the things that's very noteworthy about them, these were these women, heroines of action films who that were very popular during the 1910s, is that none of those characters have... Um, mother figures mm. um, there is no and that's what kind of makes them work I think as characters yeah. and um, and you know you look at figures like Nancy Drew for instance there's a reason she doesn't have a mom and I think yeah. there's something structural about the genre that makes uh, the appearance of a mother a, a very tricky thing to deal with and then particularly then you put it in the 1910s it's very tricky to deal with and so Wives and Daughters is about this young woman who has a mother sort of foisted on her when she's, I, I think, maybe 16 or 17. And it's, it's very interesting. And it's, it's, there's something about a father and a daughter when there's also not a son involved, right? Kitty doesn't have a brother. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. So the daughter really takes on both the role of the mother in terms of being in charge of the house, mm-hmm. but also kind of, yes, that's a really good point, occupies this place of a son in, in terms of the amount of freedom she has and what she's able to do. Right. And the kinds of, probably the kinds of conversations she has with her dad. And in, in, yeah. in the mystery series, he's, you know, she does bounce off ideas and he does explain things to her. So that relationship 
is I think would be a very different relationship if there was another woman in the picture. And as you mentioned, certainly if there was a boy, it would be very different. Yeah, but he doesn't, the father is a little bit torn, right? He's sort of, he he obviously respects her intelligence and he knows that she's very capable and can do things. And I think part of him is really uh, wants to see her fulfill all of her dreams. And on the other hand, maybe because um, he is the sole parent, he wants to make sure that he's not uh, screwing up uh, whatever she needs to be in order to become a woman who can survive in the world as a woman. Exactly. And and again, I feel like that tension is really important. I mean, it drives me nuts in, in books or in movies where you have like a f- female character going down some dark, lonely alley at the middle of the night without like taking any precautions or having anyone to call. Right. And I'm always like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And so I, I do feel like she goes out in the world, he allows her to go out in the world, but he does fight back when she does things that are stupid and potentially dangerous. And, right. and, I, and I wanted to keep that in. And I think if there, if she would have had a mother figure, you know, certain things, she would have to like outright rebel against that person to do some of the things she does. And, you know, that would just really change the dynamic. Right. Okay. So before we leave Mrs. Gaskell behind, uh, I wanted to mention a something that I discovered when I was doing some research on her biography of Charlotte Bronte. Uh-huh. And this might be something you already know, but there is a here's an interesting paragraph that I found on the internet. I'm going to just read it out here for the listeners. Uh sure. qu- quote Gaskell had to deal with some sensitive issues. This is in relationship to the biography of Charlotte Bronte. She toned down some of her material In the case of her description of the clergy daughter's school attended by Charlotte and her sisters, this was to avoid legal action from the Reverend Wilson, the founder of the school. The published text does not go so far as to blame him for the deaths of two Bronte sisters, but even so, the Wilson family published a rebuttal with the title, A Refutation of the Statements in the Life of Charlotte Bronte Regarding the Casterton Clergy Daughter's School. And... When I read that, I thought, this makes Mrs. Gaskell sound almost like a kind of a Kitty Weeks type character where she was really interested in a subject and then she started writing a profile of Charlotte Bronte, but then she got tangled up in maybe a more serious investigation. And I'm wondering, did you see Mrs. Gaskell as a role model for for Kitty at all? No, I, I actually think of her more as a role model for like, uh, I don't know so much of her about her life, but mm-hmm. but what I do know is that unlike Jane Austen or the Brontes and things, she was married, she had children, she had a full kind of domestic life, mm. and she wrote. So I, when I was starting to write, I had just had my first daughter, and I was like <laughs> trying to figure out. So I more thought like, oh, if Mrs. Gaskell could manage it, you know, I don't know how many kids she had and how much she had going on. So I've I always thought about it in that, oh, like, kind of, yeah, you yeah. know. She's and, not uh, Kitty's role model. She's yours. She was. She's mine. I know very <laughs> little about her, but actually now that you mention it, she's one of the few who sort of from that era who had a, you know, she was Mrs. Gaskell. She was not a, a single yeah. woman, and she definitely had, um, you know, a lot of children, a full, you know, her hands full with, like, day-to-day 
stuff. Right, right. Okay, so we're kind of bumping up against our our time limits here. Um, so I wanted to ask you a uh, a surprise bonus question. Okay. Are you ready? I'm very ready. Yep. <laughs> okay. And I want to kind of uh, couch this in a, I want to be respectful of the writing process. And so if this is too disruptive to your writing process and you want to refuse to answer, that's fine too. All right. Now you're making me nervous. Go ahead. (laughs) Well, I know it can be hard when you're talking about future books, if you feel like you're giving anything away or anything is making you think about things in an uncomfortable way. But here's what I'm interested in. Let's say you're uh, going to sit down and uh, write 20 novels in the Kitty Week series. Uh huh. Do you think you would stay in the, would you want to stay in the general time period? Would you keep things, you know, within the the teens and the World War One era, or would you like to see and and follow and invent Kitty as she grows up and gets married and has children and maybe grandchildren? Would you would you have any interest in taking us through the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties? I think. I mean, I think that's a really difficult question to answer. Yeah. Um, in part because each book that I write sort of gives me ideas for something else. Mm-hmm. And and also I think that, um, you know, I kind of didn't realize, but the way the events around us changes also changes my ideas mm. on what I would like to write and right. what I would like to be doing with my writing. So I think it's, it's very hard um, to project so far into the future. Yeah. What, what, what I would be writing, but 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 I kind of yes, I think just a lot of different things influence both the kind of research that I'm doing, and that gives me ideas, and then just what's going on around me, and then at certain times, certain things seem more important than others. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and other other times I'm like, wow, why am I writing about this? There's so much else going on in the world. Why am I, you know, writing yeah. something that well, said a hundred years ago? So, well, I have to say, it seems like a lot of series they they don't move forward in time like that. They um, they find the right combination of character and setting, and then they just keep exploring it. And um, you know, it's. Uh, that's certainly for my favorite books that are set in a particular era. It's certainly something that I enjoy. Um, but part of me also thought, boy, it would be great to see New York is so amazing in all of those decades. And to think of Kitty admiring Eleanor Roosevelt or even uh, as an older lady admiring the young women of the 60s and kind of taking her all the way into the Mad Men era is would be a wow. really interesting uh, idea. <laughs> well, that would be that. That's very ambitious. I have to say, quite honestly, I have not thought that far. But you I know, think probably you never would, know. It would probably also be difficult for the uh, for the author, and this is probably why it's not done so much. The author would have to become a an expert, a historical expert, over and over and over in a different time period. So that seems like it would be a lot of work. Well, also, I think you know the whole 
I mean, I think, yeah, you'd have to, it's just a lot of work. And also I think the period dictates kind of the tone and the feel of it, of yeah. what's going on. <laughs> right. so, right. so I think like this is like this moment, as I said, like uh, things are happening so condensed, which is how they make for a good mystery. That's how it works. I don't, you know, the 20s, I don't know how, I, I, I don't know the, I'm so sort of immersed in the feel of the teens that like the 20s seem like, totally foreign to me <laughs> forget the 50s and 60s so yeah but the hard thing is going to be if your characters are moving forward in their own personal lives um like i feel like her relationship is getting a little closer and uh if you want to you know have her get married and like time is going to pass unless you sort of put some of those things on hold yeah, I mean, I think in series you then have to either artificially do something or the other, and then I think you can really spoil, there is a certain, you know, you can really spoil part of the charm of what makes things fun in a mm -hmm. series. And certainly even for me, like a married kitty does not, I say this now, appeal as much as, you know, where right. she is right now. And I, and that is kind of why the novels are set pretty close together in time. Though, of course, things are move, moving along, but there are no sort of major changes so yeah. far. Yeah, and it, it's, it's also, it's very easy to imagine 20 books or whatever number you want to choose. But, I mean, they could all just be the 20 articles that she was writing during the two or three year period where she was young and single in New York. And there's no reason to have her necessarily progress through life and, and get married and have children and, and do all of that. There would be plenty of interesting things to cover. There's there's always another murder, right? <laughs> it, exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, Rana Vatsal, I really enjoyed this conversation, and as I said, I enjoyed reading Murder Between the Lines, and I think everyone should run out and buy it. It's a perfect uh, way to spend an afternoon on the beach or wherever you are this summer. We'll look forward to book number three, and I hope you'll come back for that one as well. Oh, I would love to, and uh, good luck with uh, episode 100 and keeping Mike <laughs> in check. Right, I think I will need it. <laughs> go throwing a little shade at mike palindrome so good it's one of my main jobs here keeping him in check oh i had fun with that one my thanks to rada vatsal for joining me do check out her book murder between the lines the next time you're in a bookstore or doing some online browsing rada is so smart and so dedicated to getting her books correct accurate Seeing someone immersed in the history and creating this wonderful series as part of the deal, it's inspiring. I'm Jack Wilson. The 100th episode is next week. We have a show about numbers in honor of the 100th episode. You won't want to miss it. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>